This, this is the Second Second Story Podcast. Welcome back to the Second Story Podcast. I'm Max Spitz. The idea of the semester abroad is rife with cliches in American collegiate culture. If the fiction is to be believed, students who study abroad engage little in their new surroundings, picking up just enough language to bring home a new accent. But these stereotypes miss out on the beauty of being able to immerse oneself in a brand new culture, experiencing the vast differences and unexpected similarities between home and abroad. In this week's story, teller Liz Rice shares how a month spent in Cuba during grad school opened her eyes to new understandings of Cuba, America, and herself. Recorded live at Haymarket Pub and Brewery in Chicago in February 2023, Second Story is proud to present Una Estado Unidense en Habana. Alberto, pushing my cart of luggage, out of Jose Marti Airport into a gray and muggy September afternoon in 2019. He leads me to the lot where he has parked his early 2010s gray four-door sedan. I get in next to him in the front seat, and he drives us towards Havana proper. We cross train tracks and pass through tree-lined neighborhoods next to industrial areas. As we get on the highway, Alberto makes small talk. Hablas espanol? Un poco. Hablas inglés? I respond. No. Fuck. Now what do I do? Why, you may be wondering, am I sitting in a suburban soccer mom's car with the windows rolled down on a highway in Havana, Cuba with a man named Alberto? I'm here to learn Spanish. Well, to relearn Spanish. And if you're one of my Spanish teachers, you may also be wondering why did I go to Cuba, of all places, to learn their very rapid-paced cadence of Spanish. Because as a second-year graduate student, I wanted to learn about the Chinese diaspora in Cuba for a potential PhD thesis, and whether or not I could ultimately spend a few years researching here. Because as a mixed American of Chinese and European descent, I apparently look like I can speak Spanish in the right light, and I have been asked so more times than I can count, including a few months prior when somebody on my bus missed a stop and the bus driver asked if I spoke Spanish so I could help. Because where I live in the city, all my neighbors speak Spanish. And because I could. Because it felt like a taboo. And when my graduate program awarded me a $7,000 scholarship for summer language studies, I set my mind to use part of the money to do something very few Americans got to do, go to Cuba. Estudio Sempere was a highly rated, per my Google search, Spanish school, and fell within my budget. When I applied to the school, all of my communications had been in English, and they had told me I would be given a placement test when I got to Havana. So when Alberto, a short tanned man in his 60s with a penchant for khakis and jeans, and who is ultimately my Spanish program's director, asks me, hablas espanol? 
I panic in the passenger seat. I try to pull from the recesses of my memory all the Spanish I learned in middle school and high school that I haven't used in over a decade. I don't hablas espanol. I came here para aprender a hablar espanol. 30 minutes later, we turn down a lane lined with houses partitioned by wrought iron gates and stucco walls and parallel park in front of a two-story blue building in the middle of a hill. We walk up a set of stairs to the front door and up another set of stairs to the second floor. Alberto waves me into an office and says in English, welcome to Cuba, let's get you settled. <laughs> Fucking language teachers. Alberto and the Studio Semperi teachers are more of an exception rather than a rule in Cuba. They are fluent in Spanish, though most of the school staff, neighbors, and proprietors we meet tend to only speak Spanish. I'm in Havana for four weeks, and the school sees a revolving door of Europeans who have traveled to Cuba on holiday. Sabine, who is from Germany, arrives on the same day I do. Surreal, who arrives a few days later, is from Switzerland. On our second day at Estudio Sempere, after taking our placement tests, Alberto drives Sabine and me from the school's home neighborhood of La Vibra to Habana Vieja, Old Havana, for a tour. Our first introduction to the city center and tourist hub. Three tips when traveling in Havana. One. On any major street, you'll probably see people milling about or in line for a guagua, a repurposed tour bus used for public transportation. Make sure you don't cut in line, it's rude, but it's hard to figure out where the line ends and begins, so learn how to apologize. Perdón, me disculpe, and be grateful if people let you go first because they can tell you are foreign. Gracias. Two. If you can't get on a guagua, you can try and wave down a Collectivo, a shared taxi service, like low-tech Uber. <laughs> Some cars are in the service of the government, though there will be nothing indicating that. Others are people who are willing to take folks where they need to go for a few extra bucks. How any of this is regulated, I have no idea. During a gas and thus public transportation shortage, Caused in part by U.S. gas sanctions that September, uh, there was a week when the police were just waving down any car that had empty seats and putting folks into them if they were all going in the same general direction. Three. Finally, if you have an iPhone, invest in a paper map. The Cuban government banned Apple products, so you aren't going to be able to download or upgrade any apps. Essentially, be ready for it to be an excursion just to have an excursion. Sabine, Cyril, and I become fast friends, as we have the added bonus of being able to speak English with one another. We traveled everywhere together. Trips to the rooftop club at Hotel Ingolterra, days at the beach, walks along the Prado and the Malecon, you name it. As the only American at the school, I was trying to work against the assumptions of what Americans can be like when traveling. Rude, demanding, and ignorant, both with my new European friends, but also with whom I interacted with the Cubans I met. But the longer I stayed in Havana, the harder it became to maintain my nice composure, especially in tourist areas. I had found that many Cubans are generally extraordinarily friendly and extroverted. 
Many will start chatting with you out of the blue, sometimes even mid-stride if you are out walking in popular places. By 2019, I had been living in Chicago for seven years, and I had been taught and learned the lesson multiple times over that you do not talk to strangers, and especially don't give eye contact. And when I explained this to them, the Europeans found this terribly odd. How do you meet anyone, they'd ask. Every time I would travel to Habana Vieja, whether by myself or with a group, we would always be entreated upon, and almost always by men. While never malicious, the cultural difference grated upon me. A secret? If I don't know you, a pleasant or nice composure from me isn't honest. It's protection. The first time I traversed the Malecon, the seawall that rings the Bay of Havana, with Sabine, we are approached by a group of three or four men, a traveling band. As we sit and watch the sunset, they ask us where we're from, entice us to dance and shake a maraca along with the music, and then ask, if we, asks, then ask if we have any coins for the song. This happens again and again. I'm asked if I want to learn how to salsa, to know where the best view is, to have my photo taken, and I rarely have the extra pesos to oblige. I didn't want to end up as the rude American, but I also wanted to be able to choose when I interacted. Towards the end of my stay, I started to become exhausted with my time in Havana. Sabine and Cyril had either returned home or continued down to the next stop of their holiday. I was currently the only student at a studio Sempere, and the mental exhaustion of speaking primarily Spanish and attempting to adhere to the local customs and courtesies had begun to weigh on me. I was lonely and homesick. And rather than rally myself to meet the adventure and anxiety of trying to get out to Habana Vieja by myself head on, I opted to stay in my room after class or wander la vibra where folks would less likely try to chat with me. One day, feeling this way just after dinner and before dusk, I decided to walk out to the Wi-Fi park to call my boyfriend, my parents, and check Facebook. Wi-Fi in Cuba is a public utility that is most often accessed in public spaces like parks and plazas. Using an internet phone card, I could get in touch with my family and friends when I needed a taste of home. When I had first arrived in La Vibra, the park had been filled with wooden and wrought iron benches, but steadily the wooden slats had been going missing, so I sat on the embankment that surrounds the park as I chat with my boyfriend about my growing geopolitical unease as an American. As an American, I'm conditioned by history classes and general societal culture to have certain opinions about Cuba. They generally go something like this. Castro, bad. Kennedy, good. Ca communism, bad. Capitalism, good. Now, I'll be the first to admit that I'm not very patriotic. Or perhaps that my version of patriotism doesn't fall within the confines of rah, 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 we're number one, and more in the realm of here are all the things that are fucked up, so if we're going to be number one, then we should really get working on that, yeah? (laughs) 
I attempted to come to Havana without any expectations so I could learn about Cuba and Cuban history from not US state sanctioned textbooks, about how Cubans perceive themselves and how they perceive Americans. During my second weekend in Cuba, Alberto took me on a trip to Vinales, a farming town in the western part of the island. On our drive out, I asked Alberto. I kept seeing stuff about Batista at the Museo de Revolución, but some of the exhibit rooms were closed, so I couldn't figure out what caused the revolution. What did Batista do? Alberto shared that his mother was a revolutionary, was very pro-Castro, and had even fought in Castro's army. In her 20s, she remembered what Cuba was like under Batista, who had been supported by the US government and the merchant elite. In the rural areas, which were still mostly agrarian, people were starving to death, with little access to education and modern technology, including electricity. The revolution had been a bloody civil war, with people on both sides fighting for their lives, and the US had had a hand in that. The longer I lived in Cuba, the more I peeled back my understanding of the Cuban-US relationship. This rare contact and bizarre glimpse at the effects of my country's historical and honestly current foreign policy in person reinforced how weirdly out of place I felt as a guest and tourist in this country. I wondered, still wonder, what my responsibility is as an individual citizen of a nation state that has caused so much overt and surreptitious harm. In the midst of my anxiety-laden conversation with my boyfriend, it has grown dark and the lamps opposite the park have come on. Suddenly, I hear a woman yelling from across the street. Now, I will point out that La Vibra is nowhere near what I would call quiet. Cubans conduct a lot of their social calls in their courtyards, on their stoops, and on the sidewalk. Mixed in with the calls of the street vendedores, I got used to the noise. Therefore, it takes a moment for me to realize that this woman is calling out and gesturing towards me. Hold on, I think one of my neighbors is yelling at me. Hey, hey, venga, venga. Uh, she wants me to go over. God, what does she want? I'll text you after I see what's up. I walk over to where she is standing on the street corner underneath the light. Hola, lo siento, hay un problema? No puedes estar aquí, es peligroso. She ushers me up the street back towards the school. Protege su bolsa. We stop in front of a house a few doors down, her home, and she proceeds to scold me. You can't sit in the park after dark, it's dangerous, and you need to hold onto your bag or someone will steal it. There are bad people about. Bad people? From the neighborhood? No, no, no. They're from a different neighborhood, but they come here and do bad things. Is that why there are no seats at the park? Yes, N no, I don't know, maybe. I will point out that while my Spanish had greatly improved, I was still only picking up like, 60% of what my neighbor was saying. So you can imagine me saying things like, repites, por favor. 
Mm -hmm. Si, entiendo un poco, with a lot of head nodding to convey what I understood. You're from the school, right? European? No, United States. United States, where in the US are you from? Uh, Chicago. I have family in Chicago. My daughter visited recently. She proceeds to pull out her phone and show me pictures of her daughter, who is an artist who does tattoos, her daughter's boyfriend, her boyfriend, her family, her work as a hairstylist, and all of a sudden, I feel like I'm talking to one of my aunties. I get to know my neighbor very quickly as we stand in front of her home chatting. What I say? Cubans are very friendly. I apologize and thank her profusely for looking out for me. I promise her that I won't go to the Wi-Fi park after dark and double check that it's still okay to use during the day. We say goodnight and I make my way up the hill back to my school. You can be uncomfortable and feel out of place in a new location, but still be grateful when someone cares for you, even when they are a stranger, especially when they're a stranger. This story was produced by RJ Silva, curated by C.P. Chang, and directed by Reshmi Hazra Rustabake. Music and sound design was by Justin Cavazos, with live recording engineered by Yong Wu. The Second Story podcast is produced by Max Spitz. Second Story is located in the traditional homelands of the Council of the Three Fires, the Odawa, Ojibwe, and Potawatomi Nations. Our programming is made possible by the Arts Work Fund, Walter Foundation, MacArthur Fund for Arts and Culture with the Richard H. Driehaus Foundation, Paul M. Angel Family Foundation, Gaylord and Dorothy Donnelly Foundation, Illinois Arts Council Agency, the Department of Cultural Affairs and Special Events, Innovation 80, the Lupo Family, Eric Rothstein and Gina Wamek, Athene Karras and Thomas Applegate, James Lupo, Jessica Wetmore, Hannah and George Stowe, and many generous individuals like you. I'm Max Spitz, and this, this is, is the Second, Second Story Podcast.